to Colossians 2, we'll be looking at uh, this passage in Colossians, uh, verse 16, to the end of the chapter. There's a significant portion of it in which here Paul, uh, as we've been working through this letter, um, is Paul's uh, strong admonition, his concern, is that the Colossians not be sidetracked or sidestepped by any particular false teaching or doctrine. We know that false teaching is a very serious thing uh, within the church. It's not often spoke about. It's, it's not something that is emphasized as far as needing discernment to um, stay the course. Because the nature of false teaching is that it's uh, never simple. I mean, if it is, it's not really uh, dangerous, right? There's always partial truths in what's uh, anything to take away, as we've said before, the glory of Jesus Christ, the fullness of Jesus Christ, particularly uh, lying about anything in God's plan of redemption, which is the gospel, but the most particular is the Redeemer. It's not just to lie about God's plan of redemption or His way He's going to save us, which is through the gospel, but it's uniquely the Redeemer, the person, the Logos, Jesus. If there can be a lie about Him, that can unravel this whole work of God in your own soul and mind. And so that is uh, the buttress, the fortress that Paul is seeking to maintain here. And so we'll <coughs> dive in to a particular situation uh, that is very foreign to us. It's a unique church many years ago, but we'll bring out what is going on and see how it makes sense for us today and that the threat is very much real and existential at this moment in time as it was back then. This is uh, Colossians 2.16. He says this, Therefore, do not let anyone uh, pass judgment on you in question of food or drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, and puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together in its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used. According to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom. In promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So that's his word, his counsel to them. Particularly that what... These false teachers in the church are giving the Colossians appears as though to be a solution, a medicine, a healing, but it actually is no solution. It appears, he says, according to human wisdom, to work as far as religion, what makes you spiritual, uh, close to God, united to God, uh, um, uh, asceticism and all these things. They have an appearance of self-made, man-made religion, but they actually have no power, no ability um, and his last word is to stop the indulgence in the flesh. And when Paul speaks of flesh, he means of uh, old sinful nature, the old world, the old way of living, 
Uh, there's no way to undo all that. You cannot, in short, get rid of your problems. We say we all have bad habits and we all have things we want to improve about ourselves. Paul's saying the answer is not Jordan Peterson. Okay? It's not just, you know, get yourself sorted out and figure out your disciplines and, and pick yourself up and tighten up your belt and orient your life so that you can be more successful and more disciplined. Those are all good human principles and they're actually not wrong or not false, but that actually is not the problem. The problem is sinfulness, separation from the one true and holy God. And getting up to say, I'm going to make my bed every morning now to be more disciplined and regimented and, and uh, organized in my life is good. But that is not going to get you into the holy of holies. You know, that's what he's saying here. It, it appears as though this is a good way to go. But the problem is our flesh. That no flesh will stand before God. That no flesh will be able to be in the presence of the trice holy, glorious presence of God. No human religion, no rules, nothing you can make, no conventional wisdom will get you there. And so the wisdom of Christ, to be qualified in Jesus Christ is his uh, mission, his purpose here. The verse particularly says, let no one disqualify you. The false teachers were seeking to disqualify the Colossian church. And he goes on to say, working around asceticism, uh, visionary uh, experiences of angels, and all the like. Some type of spiritual religious, religious uh, experience. The idea of being qualified, if you think what being qualified means, and I know we've all probably had experiences when you uh, sought to pursue something in life, and the door was shut in your face. Right? Whether it be a job or an application or something you wanted that you were actually told, it's very likely, maybe a few of you have always been qualified. Raise your hand. Like you shouldn't. No, don't do that. <laughs> um, you all know what that's like to be like, no, someone else got that job. Or, you know, someone else was more qualified than you. Right? That, that burns a little bit. It stings a little bit. It causes you to have to reflect upon yourself and realize, Oh, there are things, uh, particularly in the example of this, would be a resume. Or what is a resume? It's nothing more than a simple piece of paper that is you doing the best you can to say, I'm qualified. And then when you put it all out there and someone else says, no, you're not. <laughs> That's a little bit of a, it rubs the other direction, does it not? That's not the way you pet a cat. You, that's, that hurt a little. Because um, well, what is a resume? This is where I lived. This is where I've worked, all the skills I've accrued, and this is where I went to school and studied in my education. That's a resume. It's, it is, in, in no other way, just an a, a organized system of your qualifications. Um, and here's the thing that will be interesting to consider as we look at what Paul is saying. Why doesn't anybody, and I don't know why, right? Why doesn't anybody put down their elementary school on their resume? See, that's the reason you didn't get that job. See, if you could have said, I graduated with honors and distinction from Sunset Elementary in Irwin, that would have been the one. They were looking for that, you see. Or if um, you had a particularly, <coughs> I'll have, like books in my office, and on the back of the book, it will list 
the author and his qualifications, why you should read this book, because he's qualified to tell you about this topic because he has a PhD from such and such, and he spent his whole life studying this one topic, um, these qualifications. But you never flip over the book. And it doesn't ever say, like, you know, he, he was summa cum laude from Brightside Kindercare. You know, it's just, that's just not a, a qualification people were concerned about. That's actually exactly what Paul is saying here. These qualifications you're looking for, don't let anyone disqualify you based on your elementary education. Because, as we all know, the laughter behind all of this was, it doesn't matter. No one cares where you went to elementary school. It just doesn't matter at all. Because whatever those building blocks were that made you the person you are today, the person you are today is the evidence of all of that. Why go back to talk about all the minutiae of elementary school? You colored in the lines and you didn't cut your finger off and you managed to go to the bathroom on time. Like that just isn't going to work. If you put that in your resume, we should talk because that's just not going to help. And that's Paul's point here. Why? Who, like Paul is literally saying, who cares? No one cares. And you and I, we all fall into the trap of caring about what other people see in us or don't see in us. And we have interladen insecurities and falseness in our own mind because we sometimes feel unqualified. And he's going to say, all of this is because you have looked away from Jesus. These false teachers should not even have a hearing in your church. They should be laughed at. They should be derided. They should not even be taken serious for a minute. Have you not seen Jesus? How could they even have an inroad to give you any wisdom or knowledge at all? Why are you being tempted by their heresies? It says this particularly. He goes on with many of these topics like the qualification, the only qualification, the real qualification that ever needs to be had is that are you allowed to enter into the presence of God? Any other time you've been rejected, any other time you've not been qualified, ultimately, it stings for five minutes. And it really doesn't matter. The only qualification, the only way you want to resume to work is if whatever you need to enter into the glorious, blessed presence of God, to be redeemed in his presence, that if you can get a thumbs up on that, nothing else matters. And this is, if there is anything clear in scripture is this, that it is hard to get there and no one is qualified. The qualification needed to enter God's presence, that is his most holy temple, the holy of holies inside that temple, that sanctum, that cubed, cubed little room where the manifest glory of God was residing. Does this list sound familiar from what I read from Paul? You had to be circumcised to be part of the Israelite community. That is, not to get into the temple, but just actually to be part of the nation. If you wanted to be an Israelite, you had to be circumcised. There were festivals, new moons, and Sabbaths. Holy types of convocations, multiple times throughout the year, there were festivals in which they were allowed to come near the temple. There were new moons every beginning of the month. They worked on a lunar calendar in which animals and the priests would come into the temple to sacrifice. 
and Sabbaths. Sabbaths on Sabbaths. There was the Sabbath of every seven. There was the Sabbath of the seven times seven. There was the Sabbath of the seventh year. There was the Sabbath of the 49th year. There were all these Sabbaths, these special festivals that all revolved around the temple, which all revolved around the Holy of Holies, which was only holy because God's residing holy presence was there. The center of it all was that. And what worked around that was orbitary types of ceremonies that revolved around this one reality that there was a touch point in which God was upon the earth. And you could not come there very quickly. You could barely come there at all. But all these things that Paul lists were all the qualifications that could potentially get you in that vicinity. And we know that all of that does not work and the qualification is ultimately satisfied or fulfilled in Christ. This is the beauty of the passage. Colossians 1, 19, Colossians 2, 9 say similarly the same thing. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Do you realize that? In Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell there. 2, 9 says, in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That is is a remarkable statement that there would be a body that can contain Yahweh because the temple did not do that. That there was an actual location to the extreme fullness of the divine presence of God. And it was a man named Jesus that is where Paul pauses and says, why are you listening to these false teachers looking for your resume? And so what we'll look here this morning is how Paul progresses this through as a series of logical steps in which he says that you and I particularly are qualified in Christ. We are complete in Christ in these three ways. First, we are qualified in Christ so that we know that he is the substance and the reality of all redemption. And since he is that's one. The substance and reality of all redemption. We know, number two, that that reality of redemption was brought about by his death and life. And that the substance of the reality of all redemption, one. Two, is brought about by his death and life. Three, that that redemption has brought us into the fullness of God's presence. That is it. That's how God's saving us. That Jesus is the substance and reality of redemption. And he has accomplished that through his death and life. And that has brought you and I, qualified you and I, into the fullness of the divine presence. I hope that when you and I see this this morning, it will change us. That we will walk through to see this presented in the scriptures logically, coherently, so that it will click to identify in your own mind that you will walk out of here feeling with your head held higher, with your spine a little stronger, to be more resilient, to know your own place in the world, your own identity in Christ. That's the goal. To see that you are qualified in Jesus Christ. Jesus being the reality and substance of redemption. It says, let no one pass judgment on you with question of food or drink or festivals or new moons or Sabbaths. All the thing about going to God in the temple was having to do with, 
Did you eat clean food? Did you eat unclean food? If you were unclean or you touched something unclean, you couldn't get into the temple. The festivals, new moons, and Sabbaths are a three-part series of words that occur other places in the Old Testament that have to deal specifically with the temple worship. For example, in 1 Chronicles 23-31, it mentions about Sabbaths, new moons, and festivals all having to do with offerings around the temple. So what Paul's saying here is he's echoing back to this language, these requirements needed to get into the presence of God. The false teaching that is coming at them, what exactly is this false teaching? The best uh, scholars and people who study this try to infer, because we're not told in the letter at all what exactly it is they were teaching. We can only infer from these arguments what, what was generally their point of view. These false teachers were most likely taking on a mixture of the Old Testament scriptures, all of the things back here with God's wisdom and oracles, and all true, like truly, honestly, the inspired word of God, accurate, right. They're taking it and also mixing it, perhaps, with some uh, contemporary uh, Greek or pagan religion and syncretistically putting them together, synthesizing them together to create some type of teaching that is off. That it's, it's, it's a hideous beast. It's, a, it's, a, it's an animal with three eyes. It just, it's not the Word of God. It's the truth of the Word of God mixed in with so many other lies. And that, obviously, throughout all the ages, has been what false teaching is. It's truth mixed with poison. It, it looks like truth, tastes like truth, and it will kill you. That's false teaching. And the church is always threatened with this. Particularly here, is this false teaching that has to do with a mystery religion. As I said, archaeologists, scholars, in this time, around the time of Colossae, the city, there was a cult mystery religion in which it was believed that you could, through uh, asceticism, fasting, afflicting yourself, enter into an spiritual experience. And it would work in two steps. You would go into this grotto, this oracle, Uh, in the ancient Greek world, was a place where you would hear an oracle, a word from God. It had an outer sanctum. Sounds very similar to the Old Testament temple. An outer sanctum in which you would go in, afflict yourself, give yourself away from eating, look for visions, look for experiences, and then you would be given this opportunity to enter into the secret place, which is almost kind of like a holy place, an inner sanctuary within this grotto in which you would have a spiritual experience. You would look to find an oracle, for example, the oracle of Apollos. You would have someone speak God's word to you and you would take it in and it would be as <coughs> a spiritual experience in which you would look to um, um, see or experience angels and divine beings. That's evident in that area, in that culture at the time. Very much in line with exactly what Paul is addressing here. That what they really were doing And this is where it becomes relevant today. What they really were doing was saying, we want to offer you more. Yes, Jesus and all this, and this is the Christian church, we want you to experience God even more. Now let's talk about elementary school. And that's what they did. It doesn't make sense. Paul pauses them all and says, Let no one disqualify you. They're saying you need more. They're saying there's a mystery. There's a secret. You can do more to experience the goodness of God. You don't have all the blessings. Why are these trials in your life? Why are you having uh, these struggles? Why are you having these difficulties? Oh, you just need, you're not close enough to God. All these lies are wrapped up into it to say, I need more. Our culture is hungry for this. Our culture is hungry for these spiritual experiences in God, which are not wrong. 
There's two problems here. Particularly, I would say, in the more reformed side of the world, is the danger of deism. Of actually believing that God is so holy and great, he's up there. And we kind of just pray to him and put our tie on and then walk away. No. You're supposed to experience the goodness of God. Paul is not against spiritual experience. He is against any spiritual experience that is not coming from Jesus Christ as the center. That is the danger. To miss, truly, we're saying, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in that body. Where else could you go? What else do you need? And he pauses them all and says, don't let anyone disqualify you with asceticism, the worship of angels, going on, in detail about visions and puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, becoming arrogant in his spiritual experiences. The particular word which is unique here, it's the only word that occurs in the whole Bible, going on, and batuon. It's the only place in the whole Bible where that word occurs. But scholars and archaeologists have found that exact same word inscribed in the Oracle of Apollos. And these other mystery religions. That word having to do with finding a way to be qualified to enter into the inner sanctum of Apollos. And get the wisdom of God, the experience of God. You see? He's saying, they're looking to try to give you more. But it's all in Jesus Christ. There is no more for you to try to have. His reason is this. These things, these things are all a shadow of what is to come. And the substance belongs to Christ. I've mentioned before the analogy, and it's apt here to say, what we do is we walk backwards in the sense that we cannot see the future. But we only have knowledge of the past. And when the light hits through that window and the cross falls, the shadow of the cross falls upon the seats. That's the Old Testament. You can look back through the pages, the plans, the work of God in redemption from Adam to Abraham and Noah and Moses. You can look backwards and an image takes place. The sacrifices, the blood, the holiness, the, the unclean, the clean. It's all there. You can see it. And then it begins to look almost like the shape of what might be a cross. And then in the moment that Jesus comes, you can turn and you find the substance. See, there is the shadow and there is the concrete object that creates the shadow. And Paul is saying, don't go there anymore. For he has already come and laid down his life on the wood. He has offered the spotless son of God, the lamb of God has offered it. The rest is all shadows. The rest is all looking for more when it's already here. He says in uh, Hebrews 1, For the law, since it has only a shadow of the goodness to come, and not the very form of the thing, can never, uh, by the same sacrifice which they offer continually, year by year, make perfect. Those who draw near, draw near to God, enter into His presence, that is redemption. You, you, the only way to draw near was through Jesus Christ. That was always the case. 
And so they miss all of this. These false teachers miss Christ in the shadows by separating, again, as we've seen, this has been the problem regularly as we look through Colossians, separating the law of God from the Lord of the law. See, the law, everything that God has given, everything these false teachers want to take and try to divide and wrongly divide and create false truths out of, is the law of the Lord. That is Jesus Christ's law. That is His word. He is the divine giver and interpreter of that law. And when we step out of that, we reject that reality. We divide the law from the Lord. We enter into the two realms, again, two more L's, of legalism or lawlessness. And here, the Colossians are getting all wrapped up in legalism because they've taken God's law, the law about do not uh, taste this, do not touch this, um, this is clean, this is not clean, hold to the Sabbaths, hold to the new moons, do all these festivals. They've taken all the law about that and they've separated it from the Lord of that law. They have not seen Jesus Christ in that law. They just look at the law upon themselves and they become legalistic. And become a cancer upon the church. And destroy the very center of redemption in the gospel. That's what legalism is. Nothing more than separating the law from the Lord. Now, I have an example here. That might be personal, it might not. But there's a particular law in um, some houses that you can't scream really loud. Uh, we have an indoor voice and an outdoor voice. And, and that particular law is, is a good law to have. See, it's a law for elementary children, you see. That there's no screaming in the house. And maybe, maybe most particularly around dinner time. We just don't scream at the dinner table. See, but if you're outside swinging, and if you're outside going down the slide, please scream. Have fun. Don't want to be legalistic, you see. So if, if a father of a house maybe would make this law, that you separate that law from the Lord of that law. The child, small child, not understanding, why is it not socially appropriate for me to scream as loud as I possibly can in your ear? But just, they just, they, see, there's a lack of maturity. They just don't understand yet. Therefore, the law is there to guide. So misunderstanding the father and why he has such a law could produce two problems. You could become, as a child, in your ignorance, not knowing the father in his heart and his will, legalistic. Well, I'll never scream. So this is what always happens with small children. I mean, like, like literally, I'm corrected very regularly on things that you're not supposed to... There was a coffee mug uh, that we used to keep pens in, and we washed it, and I put coffee in it. And I was corrected that that coffee mug is for pens. Don't you know, Daddy, that is for pens? Now, doesn't that smack a little bit of legalism? Right. Why? Because the law and the principle of the law by the Lord of the law is different. So we say, no screaming, please, in the house. And then you know how children work, that when you're out in the playground, there's some kid running around screaming, be quiet! Stop yelling! And they're missing the intent behind the lawgiver and the law. And they're the, they're the legalistic Pharisee at the playground. Stop, stop smiling, stop laughing, stop screaming. And then the reverse happens is they could become lawless that, oh, my, my father never wants me to have any fun. 
And then they rebel against it and they start screaming in the house anyway because they realize my father doesn't really want me to ever enjoy anything. And that's also a misunderstanding. Why? Because it's a misunderstanding of the law from the lawgiver and the intent. And without that maturity, there's always this misunderstanding. But that law is given for a moment, for a moment. Now, it's another thing to have your children home from college and have to discuss at the dinner table how we don't scream or cry or pout, right? But does it work, right? See, the law was only prevalent. It was only purposeful for a time. It was serving an end to maturity. That's what Paul's saying. It's pointless. What are you doing? Why do you care about these things? Do you not know that Christ has come? Have you not been filled with him? Are you not grown up yet? See, the qualification, the second point being Christ's reality of redemption. Death and life. What does it matter anymore? The Son of God has offered his life on the cross for you. Elementary school is over. You have graduated. See, it's not just Jesus. The verse is, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world. You see? It wasn't just him dying on that cross. You died in him. You are dead to all those rudiments, to all those prescripts. They were meant for immature, foolish children. But he has moved past that. He has died. And in his death, you have died. And in his life, you have risen. You are complete. You are mature. You are united to Christ in such a way that you are free. So yes, do not put your elementary education on your resume. You have moved way beyond that. If with Christ you have died to the elemental school, the elemental spirits of the world, why? As if you were still alive in the world, you submit to these regulations. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish with use according to human precepts and teachings. Now the irony of it all is anyone who knows anything of actually God's word is God's law is all about do not tasting and not handling and not touching. Don't eat this clean food. Eat this clean food. Don't eat this unclean food. Don't touch that thing that's dirty. You can't go to the temple if you touch something that's dirty. So you say, well, why all of a sudden is that wrong? Beautiful answer. And the wisdom maturity to see this is that <coughs> there is a redemptive law. The Westminster Confession of Faith particularly breaks this down into three categories to say. There are, in God's law, moral, civil, and ceremonial laws. So that we say, and this makes perfect sense if you think about it, there is laws, there are precepts, there are commandments of God that are moral. They don't change circumstances, time, or place. They just are. I've never heard anyone complaining about those legalists that don't like to murder. Hmm? See what I mean? Oh, that person's just a legalist. Oh, oh, don't murder. Oh, boy, aren't you better than everybody? You just don't murder people. Like, well, what if you make a mistake and just happen to kill a few? You know, we don't approach ethics that way, right? There's a fundamental law that I like. I like legalists with the Sixth Commandment. Like, I think that makes for a pretty good society if we can all take the Sixth Commandment pretty seriously and not kill each other, right? So isn't that just special pleading? Why is Paul all concerned about some laws but not other laws? How come the guys who don't want to eat weird food or touch dirty things are all of a sudden corrected, that they're just going to cut that part of the law out, 
but we're going to take the sixth commandment real serious. Well, because there's a fundamental moral principle behind God's law. The, the civil law has to do with the way these laws in the Old Testament deal with our particular culture. So, for example, there was a, a, a city of refuge law. If someone was a manslaughter and, and hurt somebody on purpose or by accident, they could <coughs> run to a city of refuge in which <coughs> they would have due process, redress, trial, and maybe prosecution. Do you see how we actually live that way right now? That's actually how our society functions. So there was a reality in which there were civil laws in the Old Testament that we use today. But this is the beautiful one. There are a whole bunch of laws that we call ceremonial laws. Now, if you call them ceremonial laws, you're not wrong. That's what the confession says, and a lot of people speak of it that way. But sometimes <coughs> people speak of ceremonial laws as redemptive laws. There are all the laws in the Old Testament that had to do with God's redemption. There are all the laws, or you could say it this way, all the laws that had to do with the temple. With the ability to enter in to the holy presence of God. Not just laws about how you shouldn't steal your neighbor's goat. But there are particular laws on how to enter in to the transcendent holy presence of God. And we wrap them all up and just call them ceremonial laws. Temple laws. Redemptive laws. Redemptive laws because what redemption is, is God redeeming you, bringing you back to himself. He's trying to undo everything that was done initially in the garden with the curse. That we are all dead and apart from him. And he is doing nothing more from the beginning to the end of the Bible. Is nothing more than take you from here to here. That's it. That's the whole Bible is this motion. You're over here and he's redeeming you. Bringing you into his glorious, beautiful fellowship presence that you'd have Union with him, and therefore everlasting communion with him. Participation in his presence. That is, this is redemption. And there's a whole series of laws for just that one action of God. And that action, Paul is saying here, is complete. Completely done away with. Because of Jesus. He is God and man. He is God and man. Do you see what he has done to take you as man and he is God and bring you from here to here to be with him? So that's why Paul says, do not worry about these ones. Do not taste, do not handle, do not touch. Sabbaths, new moons and festivals. All the stuff that dealt with the temple. That was elementary school. Those were just pictures. They were just coloring pages. They weren't the real thing. They were getting ready for you to actually learn how to write. Those were the big pieces of paper where you work on your A's over and over again. That was you getting ready to learn how to write. Why go back there and try to practice your A's more? That was elementary school. These were elementary spirits. This was all done away with, with the maturity that we have now in Jesus Christ. So why he says submit to these regulations, these human traditions, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. This is all legalism. Now see, legalism because they've taken that particular law and divided it from the Lord. All the redemptive law, they've misunderstood it because they're not seeing Jesus in it. And so they're legalistic. He says, particularly <coughs> with Christ, you've died to all these things. He says, these elemental spirits. 
these elemental spirits in the world, it's like when you graduate, whether it be high school or college or something, the hat is on the head, the tassel is on the side, and Jesus' death and resurrection is nothing more than making that tassel go from here to here. That you have graduated. Don't you remember what the temple was all about anyway? Kill the animal. Spread the blood. Death, death, death. Then eventually you get into the holy place. And then eventually, one time a year, the high priest could get into the holy of holies. Which is where the being of God dwells. The one who is life eternal. So by death, you can enter into life. That's the temple. That was, this, that was the elementary lesson. And Jesus has actually done it. He has actually died and actually rose again into new creation. And you are united with him in that. So Paul is saying nothing more than take your tassel and move it over. For you have graduated into the new age, the old age, the world of the flesh has passed away. Why go back to all these things? Since there was nothing really in them anyway except symbols and lessons. The substance has come in Christ. That you are alive. And the beautiful verse, before the kids run, because I have, fortunately those doors are glass. I can see them around the corner. And it helps. That gives me that extra little advantage that you might not even know about. Um, before those kids around that corner, these verses <coughs> are beautiful to see. He says, do not go to the elemental spirits of the world. The word there is storkeia. It's used throughout the Greek world. Oh man, I look down, now they're here. Look at that. Um, of earth, wind, and fire, elemental spirits, all these things that the world was wrapped up into, the pagan world and even the Jewish world. But we're qualified in this one great connection. I want you to see Colossians 2.9, and we'll connect it with Colossians 2.10. Uh, in <coughs> him, the fullness of deity dwelled bodily. We cannot pass that statement up. First, Kings 8, when Solomon built a temple for the presence of God, he said, heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple that I built. It is idolatry to think that a created thing would be able to consume divinity itself. Even when he makes that temple, he says, this temple, let's just say it from the beginning, this temple is not containing God. Don't anyone idolize this temple? It's just a bunch of bricks. Isaiah 66, God says through Isaiah the prophet, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you could possibly build for me, for a place for me to rest? And then here in Colossians, we're told, In him, how blasphemous a statement if it's not true. The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Bodily. Oh my goodness. What is this? Do you see? And if that were not enough to be glorious, you have to read the next verse. And you, you have been filled in Him. You have been filled in Him. The fullness of the presence of God is, has been, and is coming to you. 
Where else should you go? What else do you need to have all the experiences of God now that were within your domain and the glory to come in the future forever, forever? It is not enough to say that you are qualified, you are not. But you and him are more than qualified for anything you need in this life. Second Peter 1 says, His divine power has granted us to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. You have everything you need now. And if you lack an experience or warmth or closeness to God, it is nothing more than you falling on your face and seeking that in the only name of Jesus. And he will answer that prayer. But it is not because his resources have run dry. It is not because in Christ you have anything less than the fullness of God at your disposal. For you are united to him. And he has filled you in his very presence. And will continue to final glorification. He'll give you a body and you will enter into the Holy of Holies. The real Holy of Holies. Not the one that Solomon built. That is where we're going. We're qualified. The resume will pass. For Christ has qualified us. Father God. Lord we thank you. Lord we particularly. uh, Call ourselves to confess and reflect. On what this means. That we have been filled. In him who is the fullness of deity that dwells bodily. Father, we ask that you would continue to fill us with your spirit. We understand, Lord, that our sins mitigate some of this. We regularly confess it. For by grace, through faith, by your spirit, through your word, we ask, Lord, that you would show us the fullness of Jesus Christ, everything that we might be able to contain in this age. Lord, we ask that particularly for us as a church, that our worship And everything would be full of your glory from Sunday to Sunday. Lord, we pray that in particular for revival and reformation in our country. We do not deserve it. But then again, we never deserved it. So we are encouraged to pray that you would forgive us. And that you would fill all things, even our own country, with your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.